Uh, welcome, I'm Ned Kalange. I'm the President and CEO of the Colorado Trust. And uh, I'm really pleased you're here to join us at, at what is our sold out Health Equity Learning Series event. I'd always like to start by reminding you that the Trust's vision is that all Coloradans have fair and equal opportunities to live healthy, productive lives, regardless of race, ethnicity, income, or where we live. Today's session is particularly focused on issues of race. We provided an article at each of your seats, written by our presenter, entitled Poverty and Race Through a Belongingness Lens. This article is also available on our website in the Health Equity Learning Series section. We believe it provides a great starting point for discussing the ways that poverty can be addressed in the United States. I don't know how many of you were paying attention or noticed that the Census Bureau data came out yesterday. It was startling. It showed virtually no change in the poverty rate. Nearly 47 million Americans live in poverty. And so talking about the roots of poverty and the impact of race and uh, racism is an important concept to bring forward today. I want to take a moment and, and welcome our virtual participants. This is to remind people in the room that we are live streaming to over 20 sites across the state as part of the series to engage communities other than just the metro area and people who are able to come to the uh, History Center but people who are interested and able and willing to spend time with us across the state. Um, after the presentation today, we'll engage in a dialogue with the audience. For those who are streaming the presentation, we're asking that you submit your questions via Twitter. You can follow the Colorado Trust and use our hashtag HealthEquityTCT. Or if you prefer, you can email us your questions, and that's to healthequity at coloradotrust.org. Now, I have to say we'll do our best to answer the questions, but recognize we have a full room and a lot of people across the state, uh, and we'll do our best to get to as many questions as we can. So it's my pleasure to introduce today's speaker. Professor John A. Powell is the director of the Haas Institute for a Fair and Inclusive Society. He's also the Robert D. Haas Chancellor's Chair in Equity and Inclusion at the University of California, Berkeley. Oh, and thanks, Julian. He led the development of an opportunity, I'm sorry, formerly he directed the Kerwin Institute for the Study of Race and Ethnicity at The Ohio State University and the Institute for Race and Poverty at the University of Minnesota. He led development of an opportunity-based model that connects affordable housing to racialized spaces in education, health, healthcare, and employment, and is the author of Racing to Justice, Transforming Our Concepts of Self and Other to Build an Inclusive Society. His presentation today will focus on how health outcomes are connected to life opportunities and we'll hear explanations about how health is significantly influenced by the social determinants of health and how racialized structures such as housing segregation determine the health and well-being of marginalized communities. 
We'll listen to how the government has played and continues to play a critical role in creating the racialized health disparities that exist. And lastly, Professor Powell will present a framework to move towards health equity with a framework called targeted universalism, which I'm excited to hear about. So without any further comments, help me in welcoming Professor John A. Powell. Thank you, Ned, and thank the Colorado Trust and your co-partners, the Women's Foundation, uh, and, and I know I'm leaving out some, but uh, the Health Foundation, and then all of you for the work that you do here in Colorado. Uh, so I'm going to share with you um, my slides. I mean, I get through all of them. I think I have about 40 minutes, and I, I probably have more slides than uh, allowed for that time, but I'll make the PowerPoint available. Um, and um, this work is extremely important and somewhat complex. Last night we had a brief meeting and uh, we talked about things like structural marginalization, structural racialization, and then a lot about implicit bias in the mind science. Uh, the latter part, implicit bias in mind science, is not part of my formal comments, but if you have questions about it afterwards, I'd be happy to uh, share with you. <coughs> So one of the things to think about in terms of structures, and I'm going to be focusing primarily on structures, we tend to be, you know, we, we tend to be blind to structures. We tend to not notice the work they're doing. Uh, and if we notice, we think of structures largely as just something out there. There's a sidewalk, there's a building, there's a policy. Uh, and what I'm suggesting in the talk today is that, first of all, that we all live in structures, and, um, and the structures are not neutral. They do certain work, and they distribute opportunity unevenly across populations. And if we're actually going to have positive health outcomes, if we're going to have equitable health outcomes, we have to pay attention to not just what we're doing, but the work that the structures are doing. In addition to we, us living in structures, structures live in us. And so if you look at things like epigenetics, we actually know that the physical environment the cultural environment, the social environment, is actually mapped onto our body. And so if we're actually trying to change health outcomes, we need to actually pay attention to not just the biological manifestation, but the structures, the mechanisms that are putting those things in place in the first place. Um, so I'm going to be focusing largely on race, and I'm not talking about structural racism. Many of my friends and colleagues do work in this area, and I initially started off talking about structural racism, but now I use the term structural racialization. And I use this term very deliberately. Uh, and we could back up a little bit and say we're talking about really how structures can either marginalize people's lives or structures can enhance people's lives. Uh, they're almost always doing one or the other. And it's not just along the axis of race, but it's also on the axis of gender, on the axis of age, on the axis of disability. Uh, and so to sort of think about what are the structures doing and who are they doing it well for and who are they not. One indication of this, of course, is data itself. So when we see uh, a population that's constantly missing in terms of opportunity and constantly overrepresented in terms of uh, negative outcomes, 
we probably have a pretty good indication that there's something going on structurally and that the, to interrupt that, we have to be aware of what that is and make structural changes. Um, <clears throat> race is something that, um, you know, I think I often say this, uh, that race is a lot like gravity. Um, and you may wonder, well, how does race and gravity relate? Well, all of us have weight. And yet, by some accounts, there are about 12 people in the world that really understand gravity. Uh, and I would say maybe 14 people really understand race. Race is also like cancer. And one of the difficulties with addressing cancer is that to the general public, people think of cancer as a disease. Uh, those of you in the health profession know that cancer is, there are hundreds, if not thousands, of different forms of cancer. Uh, and while they have some commonality, they have very significant differences. And they're constantly evolving. And again, I would say race is a process, a complicated process. It's not a single thing. And it operates differently in different contexts. Uh, we could be talking about racial prejudice. We could be talking about racial bias. We could be talking about racial stereotypes. We can be talking about racial resentment. All of those are different. Uh, and to see how they manifest and to see the work they're doing and to see how they might be interrupted requires looking at them. That may sound like a small requirement, but it's also uncomfortable. So in that sense, race is harder than gravity. Because most of us, even though we don't understand gravity, other than weighing us down, pun intended, uh, we don't actually have disquiet around gravity. Uh, we don't wake up in the morning thinking, I want to avoid gravity today. Uh, but most of us are really not very skilled at talking about race. We can literally, we can do this, we can measure people's reaction to a conversation about race. And as you might imagine, the pupils start to dilate, the blood pressure starts to go up, the anxiety starts to go up. It's not fun. Uh, and so we prefer to avoid it. And yet if we, don't, if we avoid it, we can't begin to really understand it to make the kind of changes we need to. Uh, so race shows up and structure shows up at different levels. We can talk about it in terms of uh, the national level. We can talk about it uh, in terms of what's happening contemporaneously. Uh, but one of the things in terms of talking about structural racialization or structural marginalization is not simply to deepen your understanding is to change the outcomes. So to some extent, when we look at systems and structures, we're interested in what they're doing to produce certain outcomes. Uh, and as long as those outcomes don't change, then I would say we haven't really done our work. Uh, and I can say a similar thing about when I do work around implicit bias. I always make the point, the goal is not to end bias. The goal is to change outcomes. Uh, and so to really be focused on outcomes to know we're doing better or not based on outcomes. And we just heard the new census data suggests that at least on the metrics of poverty, not much change. So we have all these programs, all these announcements, and things remain the same. Uh, so something's amiss. Part of the thing in terms of looking at structures is to look at the relationship between structures. And so, uh, for example, I teach at UC Berkeley, uh, it's a fabulous school. I, I'm delighted to teach there. We don't 
have a very good track record right now in terms of African Americans. We do slightly better, but not great in terms of Latinos. Um, and again, not that great in terms of Native Americans. And yet, we profess, and I believe sincerely, that we actually want to be a diverse university. We're a public university. So what, what's going on? What's preventing us from having the numbers and the, the kind of critical mass that we want? Well, first of all, we're, um, we have feeder schools. So what happens in high schools? What happens in junior high schools? What happens in junior colleges? By the time the pool gets to us, they've already been engaged in a complex system. And then, let's say you manage to navigate that complex system. There are all these mechanisms. To give you two examples, several years ago, there were uh, a threatened lawsuit. I don't know if it went forward where I think it was 900 black and Latino students threatened to sue because they were not allowed into the flagship schools uh, of the UC system, including Berkeley. They had 4.0s. They were all A students, and they were told they could not get in. How's, what else could they do? They had high uh, SAT scores, um, and yet they were told they could not get in. And at the same time, we're professing that we want more black and Latino students. It turns out that the average freshman coming into Berkeley has, uh, I was told, a 4.3 average. Uh, so it's not enough to have all A's. You've got to have better than all A's. How do you get better than all A's? You take AP classes. And it turns out that in these schools where these black and Latino students went, there were no AP classes. So they had done everything they possibly could do, but there was a structure that still impeded their moving forward. And then if you get through that, there's a question of cost. How do you pay for college? Uh, and the cost, again, begins to sort people out in different ways. And we know that not just income, because income is important, but wealth is more important in terms of paying for college. And the wealth disparity in the United States between blacks and whites is somewhere in the neighborhood of 1 to 20, and somewhere in the neighborhood 1 to 18 for Latinos. So you have all these mechanisms, you have all these structures interacting to produce this negative outcome. So one of the things to be aware of when you're looking at structures is not a particular thing, whether it's housing, whether it's health, whether it's education, it's the relationship between the things. It's to understand the dynamic relationship between those things and the outcomes those relationships push. Um, so part of the thing we're concerned about is how opportunity can structure not just outcomes, but how it can structure um, uh, positive and negative outcomes, how these different things interact, uh, and how they also are impacting behavior. One way we understand this in the social science is a uh, catch-all is neighborhoods. There's something called the neighborhood effect. And that's independent of individual behavior. Neighborhood affects everything. It affects is there a grocery store? Is there dry cleaners? Is there, uh, I was with a friend recently in Detroit, and she was looking for some place to get her nails done. And I said, there are nail places everywhere, coming from the Bay Area. Not so in Detroit. Um, people don't get their nails done. They have nails, they don't have money for it. Um, dry cleaners. As Detroit became poor and poor, there were fewer and fewer dry cleaners. There are fewer and fewer grocery stores. And that has an effect on the population. Um, and so we can actually measure neighborhood effect 
independent of individual family behavior. And neighborhood effect, once the neighborhood becomes what's called concentrated poverty or poor, it has negative outcomes for everyone in that neighborhood. And the neighborhood effect is racially inscribed in the United States. The vast majority of them, and we're having an increased number of highly concentrated poverty neighborhoods, are black and Latino. Uh, and it's not distributed evenly across race. So whites, even poor whites, are much less likely to live in high concentrated poverty. If you live in a high concentrated poverty neighborhood, not only does it affect whether or not there's a dry cleaners in your area, it affects the development of your brain. Uh, so Samson has written a book and showing that living in high concentrated poverty uh, reduces your IQ score. Uh, and has the effect of reducing your school performance by as much as two to three grades. Um, so the effect of living in concentrated poverty has an impact on your brain, the structure of your brain. And these institutions are interactive. They're, um, so they affect each other, and they also um, affect the populations that live there. So think about an escalator. Um, if you're trying to get upstairs, one person has an escalator, another person does not. I, I talked to some of you, and some of you say you spent time in New York. In New York, they have like six-story walk-ups. When you walk up six stories, you plot whether or not you're going to the grocery store. <laughs> and it's like, I went yesterday. Uh, you know, I'm not that hungry today. Uh, if you have an escalator or an elevator, it feels very different. So an escalator or an escalator distribute opportunities in very uneven ways. So what if you have an escalator? Well, that's fine, unless you're in a wheelchair. And then what do you do? An escalator is useless if you're in a wheelchair. So an escalator actually is distributing opportunity in a biased way. For people with certain disabilities, an escalator is useless. Yet when we build an escalator, we don't say, you know, I never did like my cousin uh, since he broke his leg. I'm going to build an escalator so he can never come see me. Uh, so it's not conscious intent that produces these outcomes. But if we look at structures themselves, we notice that certain people are missing, certain people are not there, certain people are overrepresented. What's going on? Uh, how do we actually organize structures so that the structures are doing the work we want them to do, that they really are inclusive? Um, obviously, someone who is not cited uh, so if we distribute all of our resources in terms of uh, visual, it means a sighted person's at a disadvantage. And some things now are so common sense that we can't believe we didn't do it. But when people who couldn't speak English were in school in San Francisco and they wanted to give instructions in their native language, the school response initially was, we're going to treat all the kids the same. Everyone's going to learn in English. We're going to treat everybody the same. Everybody's going to learn in English. Uh, and that case went all the way to Supreme Court to be able to say no if people speak a different language. If they don't uh, see, you can make we call it special accommodations. I want to suggest, in some ways, they're not special accommodations. Because we make accommodations for everyone. So when we make accommodations for someone else. It's not special. We're just making accommodations for people. I tell the story when I went to Ohio State to teach. Ohio State used to have a rule, they may still have it, 
that if you were traveling on Ohio State business you, and you wanted to rent a car, you had to rent a subcompact, even if you're paying for it out of your own pocket. And I'm almost 6'4". Uh, and I said, I'm not doing that. And they said, that's the rule. We're treating everybody the same. Uh, and I said, I'll bet you a dime to a donut that the person who generated that rule was under six feet. Uh, and the chancellor, or president at the time, Gordon Gee, who was a friend of mine, he made a special dispensation that I could get a big car, a full-size car. But they didn't change the rule. And so I became the special person. And as I drove around, people would say, oh, there goes Professor Powell. He thinks he's all that in his big car. <laughs> um, so part of it is that we're not noticing the work, the structures are uneven and they affect us unevenly. I've already talked a little about neighborhood effect. Uh, I'll talk about this more later, but we actually can plot and project how long someone live based on the zip code. So we're distributing health and we're using neighborhoods to distribute health outcomes. Uh, why should someone's health, how long they live and what kind of life they live, depend on their neighborhood. How we arrange these structures matter in terms of time, in terms of priorities, in terms of emphasis. Uh, all these things matter in terms of uh, the impact they have on populations. So institutions are important. Now, at one point, we structured these institutions very deliberately to exclude people. We had segregated neighborhoods. We had job categories that women couldn't work in. We had um, uh, certain things that uh, people with disability were closeted away. Most of those explicit barriers have been removed. But when we look at the outcomes, many of the outcomes still are reflected in terms of job categories. Now, I don't want to embarrass anybody or be an um, ungrateful guest. And I know the Women's Foundation is here, but I notice most of the people in the audience are women. Most of the people at dinner last night were women. And that's fine with me, you know. <laughs> but just notice it, right? You go some places and they're all guys. I do some work uh, with people in Silicon Valley at some of the computer companies. You wouldn't see a table like this with all women. So how is this, how, what's going on this sorting women to be here and sorting men to be in Silicon Valley? And you say, maybe it doesn't matter. But then we might look at the pay scale and we might say, well, maybe it does matter. Uh, uh, but anyway, just, just become, not become blind to what structures are doing. And we might think of it as, well, people just chose to do this as opposed to that. But it's never quite that simple. Uh, choices are always structured. Um, the government plays a central role. And it always has and it always will. So the government actually creates these structures. Think about schools, the way we fund schools. I had a colleague who worked with me at, at, at um, Ohio State, and she was a computer uh, technologist. And her English was um, not very, she wasn't very fluent in English, but she was good at what she did. And she came to me one day. And she said, Professor Powell, I read something and I'm sure I didn't understand it. It must be my bad English. And I said, what did you read? She said, I read that you fund schools based on local property tax. And I know you don't do that because that would be crazy. <laughs> <laughs> and unequal and unfair. And I said, no, your English is fine. <laughs> All 
Our school system, well, that's another story. Uh, so the way we actually structure schools, the way we structure neighborhoods, uh, the way we structure transportation system. There was just, again, working in a city, and I won't name uh, the city right now, uh, um, city of a lot of lakes, I'll just say that. Uh, and the question is, where does public transportation stop? Does it serve the black community? Does it serve the Latino community? Now, the population that's least likely to have cars are black women. So do we design our public transportation system to make sure they serve black women? I don't think so. Uh, and where I'm in the Bay Area, uh, even to get on public transportation system, going back and forth can be five or six dollars. Uh, so it distorts who can use it. And again, but no one says we want to make sure black women or people without money can't use BART. Uh, but we make concrete decisions as to which neighborhood they go in. Obviously, this has an impact on children. It has an impact on adults. It has an impact on our entire society. Uh, there's a book that I'd recommend called Spirit Level. They show that the more unequal a society, the more negative the health outcomes are for the entire society. Not just poor people in society, for the entire society. And they do a similar thing looking at states in the United States. The more unequal the states, the more negative the health outcomes are for everyone in the states. So inequality, these social determinants, is having some huge problems on the entire population. I'm going to go through some of this quickly. Uh, obviously, segregation has a negative impact on health. Now, in today's parlance, people, we don't talk about segregation much anymore, although recently it's gotten some press. Uh, we think, why does it matter? Segregation is never just separating people based on race or ethnicity. It's the way we distribute opportunity. So when we talk about a group being segregated, we're talking about a group being segregated from opportunity and for, for the determinants for a healthy, uh, vibrant life. Uh, and most of us, when we pick a neighborhood, we intuitively try to pick a neighborhood that have those things. If we have children, we think about a school system, we think about a grocery store, we think about a park, we think about public transportation, uh, we think about places that are safe. All those things matter. Um, and then we put a price tag on it so that most people can't live there. I just came from Detroit visiting um, my dad, who just turned 95. Um, and Detroit's apparently making a comeback. But the services in Detroit, uh, my dad recently moved to the suburb. At 95, he's worried because the services, emergency services basically said, if you call, we won't come. The police said, if someone burglars your house, we won't come until there are at least three indications that a burglary is going on. So the first one, you don't get a response. The second one, you don't get a response. And I love Detroit, so I'm not bashing Detroit. But literally, I had a friend, a woman friend, African-American living in Detroit. She comes home, her door's kicked in. She calls the police. She says, you know, it's 7 o'clock at night, I just got home, my door's kicked in. And they say, well, go inside and see if the person is still there. <laughs> she moved. Um, crime has a powerful impact on health outcomes. Uh, if you're exposed to four shocks, four traumas, it restructures the brain. Low-income black children, 
by the time they reach 11, have been exp exposed to as many as 10. So they're suffering from post-traumatic stress syndrome because of the environment they live in. Uh, you go into some inner city schools, and virtually every kid knows someone who's been shot or beat up. Uh, and it's not just affecting the person that's shot. It's affecting the entire community. Uh, and so those kids are dealing with stress. And then they go to school with medical needs, and oftentimes they're misdiagnosed. And this is some data comparing health outcomes for blacks, Native Americans, and Latinos. And it won't surprise you that there's a huge disparity between all these groups. But I also want to emphasize that when you have these disparities, it's not only depressing the health outcomes for these target groups, it's affecting the health outcomes for whites as well. Now, sometimes when people look at these things, they, they want to make the argument or assertion that, well, this is just socioeconomic. This is just uh, has really nothing to do with race. It looks like it has something to do with race because blacks or Latinos are more likely to be poor. But if we took account of SES, it would actually disappear, race would disappear. Unfortunately, that's not true. Uh, race in our society and how it operates is independent of SES. It actually is cumulative with it, but it's not the same. Um, and it, along every indicator, life expectancy, uh, quality of life, we see huge disparities between uh, whites and non-whites. And again, it's not just because of where people live, it's also because of how race operates. So we're going to show you this video. And this video makes the case, uh, I'll just do a slight introduction. Most healthcare workers know that the poorer you are, the more likely you are to have a low belt, uh, either um, infant mortality or, or low belt birth weight baby. Uh, and they were surprised when they found out African American women, uh, even when they were college educated and middle class, still had low birth, birth weight babies. And it took them a while to sort of understand that. And I'll show you the video and then I'll talk about it a little bit. And we'll look at it for maybe three or four minutes. That's supposed to be a cue for someone in the back to show you the video. Several years ago, two physicians in Chicago set out to solve a mystery. Why do African-American women have babies that are born too small at twice the rate of white American women? Richard David and James Collins are neonatologists, pediatricians who specialize in the care of infants who come into the world too early or dangerously underweight, and often both. Like virtually everyone in their field, they were troubled by the striking racial differences in rates of premature and low birth weight babies. What could account for the differences? I originally thought that the disparity in premature delivery was really driven by socioeconomic differences between African Americans and whites. It is well known that African Americans have a lower 
collectively uh, socioeconomic status than whites or less likely to receive college education um, than whites. So I thought once you corrected for that, that the gap would go away. But Collins and David discovered the gap didn't go away. We were very surprised to find that the gap actually widened as education and socioeconomic status improved. And then began to look at it from a bigger perspective and broader perspective and really started to realize, well, maybe it's something about lifelong minority status, which is the driving factor here. There's something about growing up as a black female in the United States that's not good for your childbearing health. I don't know how else to summarize it. So the two neonatologists began to explore whether being a member of a particular minority group might affect pregnancy outcomes and they came up with a controversial hypothesis. What's behind the low birth weight and premature birth for African-American babies is the unequal treatment of African-Americans in American society. In other words, racism is taking a heavy toll on African-American children even before they leave their mother's wombs. It's an idea that's slowly gaining acceptance. We're in the midst of a paradigm shift. 15 years ago, racism as a risk factor was almost never heard of in a scientific paper, whereas now it's much more a possibility. The story of Kim Anderson, a successful Atlanta executive and lawyer, illustrates exactly what David and Collins are talking about. We know that a healthy lifestyle should lead to a healthy baby. Women who eat well, exercise, get prenatal care, avoid alcohol and drugs and cigarettes are more likely to have a good pregnancy. But one of the best predictors for a healthy pregnancy outcome is higher education. This is a picture of me, May 1984, when I graduated from Columbia Law School. People think I'm living the American dream, a lawyer with two cars, two and a half kids, you know, the dog, the porch good husband, great family. I've always been lucky to have good health. Always ate well, exercised, never smoked. So when we look at Kim Anderson, a well-paid lawyer in good health, we would expect her newborn to be a healthy, full-term baby. It didn't turn out that way. So you'll have the video available to you later, but the point they're making in the video and that I'm making is that race is an independent factor, or not race really, but racialization. The stress of being uh, non-white in America, and more particularly of being black in America, is independent of income. Um, and so there was a story recently in Napa Valley where several, I think nine um, black women, one white woman, they were going, these were all middle class, upper middle class, they were going on wine tasting. They got on a train and they were kicked off. And these were women in their 60s and 70s. And, um, the, um, and so you heard of driving while black, this was drinking while black, uh, or breathing while black. Uh, and although those terms suggest something sort of humorous, it's also quite real. Um, and one of the women in particular being interviewed, to, to this day she cannot talk about it without breaking down into tears. So think of the accumulation of that day in and day out. Think of when my son turned 15 or 16 and he wanted to get a cell phone. I did research and there had been a number of police shootings 
of young black men reaching for their cell phone that the police thought was a gun. There have been no shootings of police mistaking a white kid reaching for a cell phone or a gun. And I'm not saying the police in a narrow sense is racist. I said to my son, you cannot get a cell phone. He was livid. It's like, why can't I get a cell phone? Um, and this is experience individually and collectively uh, um, across the country. So they did a study in terms of blacks being stopped by police. Uh, what's your experience? Now, none of us like being stopped by police. When a black person stopped by police, it's a different experience. It's like, all I got was a ticket, yay! You know, uh, whereas most of us would be upset if we got by uh, with a ticket. So these, um, these effects, sometimes talked about as stress, uh, or also uh, allostatic load. Allostatic load is a more complicated way of thinking about stress, the stress and how we reduce stress in our life individually and collectively. And we know that allostatic loads is, has a different racial component to it. Um, and it affects our health outcome. The greater the load, the worse your health. Um, and now we can measure that. And so we can see that race plays independent role than SES, and SES play, plays a role as well. Um, so here are some differences, and we see the uh, allostatic low actually increase as we get older. Um, and, and so there are friends of mine who joke, who said, you know, you have to take a break from being a black person in America and leave the country periodically. Um, there's a famous exchange between Mark the Mead and James Baldwin. And uh, they're both giants in their respective field. And they had this long interview, this eight-hour interview uh, with each other. And at some point, James Baldwin turns to Margaret Mead and said, you know, you are a well-educated, um, uh, super intelligent um, a literary figure, uh, but you're a white woman in a, basically a man's world. That must be very hard. Do you feel like? you belong. And she said, are you kidding me? I feel like I belong everywhere. Basically, this is my world. And then she turns to Baldwin and she says, how about you? I know you don't like New York, where the interview is taking place, but uh, where do you feel like you belong? And Baldwin says, nowhere. Uh, and think about this. He was one of the greatest literary figures of our time, uh, at the height of his literary career, saying there's no place I feel comfortable. Uh, and as you know, he left uh, and went to Paris looking for some place that was a little more comfortable than New York for a black gay man uh, during his lifetime. So that constant stress of not belonging, uh, of uh, even if you're not going to get shot, that constant place of saying this is not your place um, is huge. And, I, and this is an issue that's actually affecting the whole country right now. Because as the country becomes more diverse, there's a fight over who does the country belong to. And there's some people who are saying, it doesn't belong to blacks or Latinos, or, you know, let's build a wall. It's our country. Instead of it being collectively all of our country, there's some people saying, no, it's my country. It's not your country. It's my country. And that's not just an idea. That's how we organize our neighborhoods. That's how we organize our churches. That's how we organize opportunity. That's how we organize our corporations. Um, and it's a constant message to be sent, both verbally and unconsciously. And it has very serious, <coughs> excuse me, health outcomes. 
And the work that we do today, the work that you do today, when we talk about social determinants, is leaning into that. So we look at all these determinants in the article that you have on your table. Uh, I suggest an article that you can actually boil all these social determinants down to belonging or being othered, being told that you don't belong, being told that this is not your place. And I could recount stories that are humorous and tragic at the same time. Uh, um, I'll just tell you one. Years ago, when I was a young lad, I went to Stanford. And Stanford was one of the first schools in the country, elite schools in the country, that welcomed African Americans. There were 22 of us out of a school of several thousand, 22. And Stanford was really dead set on making us feel at home. So they had us meet. First of all, it was interesting, they put one of us in each dorm to spread us out so that the white students would have the experience of seeing a black person. Uh, but then they brought us all together and with a, uh, a white psychologist and she said, we sat down on Stanford's grass and she cracked open uh, a watermelon. <laughs> Welcome to Stanford. Uh, um, so anyway, Stanford is a lot better now. And if I, <laughs> in fact, it has no racial majority. But, but the point is, is that how do we actually say to people, you belong? How do we say to a person who's in a wheelchair uh, that you belong when there are no uh, pathways for them to get in? How do we say to a blind person who sits in a room, uh, we, we don't have the right facilities to say, this is your place? How do we say to an immigrant uh, that, that you belong? So this is actually the issue that I think we'll be facing, not just politically, but uh, medically as well. Um, and here's some data we can show how we, this is out of Kansas, how we structure neighborhoods, how we concentrate race and poverty in certain neighborhoods, and all those neighborhoods have those negative outcomes. So when we say basically, this is a black space, Napa Valley, where you go to drink wine, is a white space. And when blacks go into a white space, or Latinos go into a white space, the message is sent, you don't belong. I know I'm running out of time, so I'm gonna go over I wanna talk a little bit about target universalism, then I'll end. So I call target universalism equity 2.0. Uh, when we talk about equity, a lot of people think it means closing the disparity between the dominant group, i.e. whites, and everybody else. Uh, and while that's a legitimate goal, I want to suggest that really the goal is to set a universal goal and to get every group there. And when we set the universal goal, we find that most whites don't have that universal goal either. They may have more than blacks or Latinos, um, but white Americans, by and large, have been static for the last 30 years in terms of health outcomes, in terms of income, in terms of wealth. Uh, and I think part of what we're seeing in the country is that whites are, they, they have a sense, many of them, that they're losing something. Uh, and they think they're losing it to blacks and Latinos. Instead of saying, everybody should have health care, everybody should have, as you suggest, uh, decent health outcome, everybody should have access to good schools. Um, and many of us don't. And so to be very clear and to state what is the universal goal we're trying to get. Now the second part of target universalism is recognizing that in terms of achieving that goal, 
we're situated differently. So we have to understand that where blacks are situated, where Latinos in rural Colorado are situated, are different than where urban middle class whites are separate, uh, situated. So we have to understand how they're situated differently in structures and what structures are doing to actually advance them toward their universal goal or impede them from getting that universal goal. And it doesn't make them special pleaders to say they need something different than whites. It doesn't make me a special pleader to say I need a larger car than a subcompact. I'm situated differently than the person who is shorter, maybe I shouldn't say shorter, uh, person under six feet. <laughs> I'll leave it at that. Uh, so part of it is to really understand how we're situated. And how we're situated is largely talking about race and ethnicity. We're uncomfortable talking about race and ethnicity, and then if we continue that, we fail to notice we're situated differently within structure and within our culture. And the goal of saying treat everybody the same, while that sounds good, um, they say a rising tide lifts all boats. <laughs> what if you have a car? These are real pictures from New Orleans. Uh, so if you have a car, rising tide is not going to rise your car. Uh, so to realize that not everybody has a boat. Some people have a car. Some people have nothing at all. So we can't have one strategy. Sometimes in our effort to be fair, we say we're going to treat everybody the same. As a doctor or a nurse or health practitioner, you wouldn't say that. Uh, and it sounds good because we treat uh, people of color so much worse than, uh, than whites. And so we think if we treat them as well as whites, we've arrived. Uh, but that's only part of it. Uh, we have to be clear about target universalism. So um, again, the, the universal takeaway from this is how do we make sure that everybody belongs? How do we not other people? Um, and how do we make sure, and othering is not, not simply saying a person's not me or different than me. Some way that we deal with people's otherness, apparently, is to say everybody's just like me, uh, which is only a, a soft form of othering. So we need to develop new networks, new pathways to belonging. Um, and in doing so, we can actually begin to deal with health and wellness, not just sickness. And I'll end by saying this. Um, there is, we know now that people's networks matter. And this actually was, a, I think, a study out of the CDC. They looked at sexually transmitted disease. And they looked at the behavior of the individual participants, and in this study, uh, black and white had basically the same behavior in terms of uh, how often they had sex, was it protected, uh, how many partners they had, and they found the outcomes were very different. And at first, it confused them. It's like, well, if, they, if two groups are behaving the same, why do they have different outcomes? And what they found is they had different networks. And if you have a network where one person is related, or A is related to B, and B is related to C, and C is related to D. That's how the sexually transmitted disease travels. But if you have a network where A is related to B, B is related to C, C is related to A, so the networks is crisscrossing, which is called thick networks, the, the disease travels much faster. Um, and what we know in terms of low-income communities is oftentimes, and we can map this out now, 
their networks are very different than middle class networks. First of all, the networks are flat, meaning they don't know people with power and influence. Uh, and um, I'll give you two examples and then I'll end. These are real examples. I did a, um, a study in Cleveland looking at why uh, black and Latino businesses grew at the same rate as white businesses for the first six years and then they stopped growing. Uh, and then the white business kept growing and took off, and the black and Latino businesses it did not. And everyone said, well, it was discrimination. Uh, and I said, well, that doesn't make sense. There was no discrimination the first six years. Um, essentially what they found is that after six years, if you're successful, instead of getting debt alone to grow your business, you needed um, basically equity investment. And the way you get equity investment through venture capital and other things is your network. You called up someone that says, how would you like to invest $100,000 in my business? And it's basically was word of mouth. So who do I know? Which of my cousins, uncles, nieces, nephew, have $100,000 laying around that can invest? And I talked earlier about the wealth disparity. And because whites have more wealth, it's more likely, and we're racially segregated, that white businesses could call their uncle and say, I have a great idea, and if I get an investment, it's going to take off. And blacks simply did not have that network. Latinos simply did not have that network. And what Cleveland did was create a venture capital fund to sort of help with that network. The last example I'll use is thinking about who do you call when you get in trouble, when you need something, your network. There's a young man walking down the street. Um, it's dust. There's a suspicious car following him. What does he do? He needs help. He picks up his phone and he calls his girlfriend. His name is Trayvon Martin. There's a young man driving down the street. He sees what he thinks is a suspicious character. He's uh, wearing a hoodie. He doesn't recognize him. He picks up his phone, who does he call? He calls the police, Mark Zimmerman. So even who we call, our network reflects uh, how our lives will unfold. If Trayvon Martin felt comfortable calling to the police, he probably would be alive today. He did not feel comfortable calling the police. And I asked my students at Berkeley, if you're walking down the street and something suspicious happened, who would you call? And not one black male student said they would call the police. So these are not just social issues, these are health issues. But we can look at them through the social determinants, we can look at them through health, through networks. Uh, and my point is, in your work as health providers, to sort of think about all these things, to think about the networks your communities have, to think about how they're connected, to think about where they live, to think about what we're doing to produce uh, positive and negative health outcomes and positive and negative well-being. Um, and I'll end by saying, Wendell Berry, he says, health is membership. Thank you. I want to alert people that uh, this is a question and answer session. We've tried to leave a substantial amount of time. There are microphones in two places in the room. And because we're live streaming out to other parts of Colorado, I'd really like to encourage you to ask your questions from a microphone. For those of you who are streaming from greater Colorado, um, please submit your questions to Twitter 
through hashtag healthequitytct, or you can email questions to healthequity at coloradotrust.org. And I'm going to take the privilege of asking the first question. It doesn't mean it's any better. It's just mine. Um, it was a very powerful discussion, Professor Powell, about the issues that we're facing. And um, some of the things that the conversations we have with people in the room and in places across Colorado is, OK, so what should we do? And, and so I wonder if you can think about you know, model programs or policies or movements that have uh, moved us, moved uh, a community down the path towards belongingness? That's a great question. Um, and there are many things. So uh, there's been some research done on this. Uh, we're doing a lot of work at the Haas Institute, which is I direct. Um, part of it is began to understand the problem, excuse me, in the context of affirmative action. Um, Sandy Day O'Connor, uh, Justice of the Supreme Court, when she wrote an opinion, she talked about critical mass. And there's a concept, uh, this is in a book called Whistling Vivaldi, uh, written by Claude Steele, uh, the provost at Berkeley. Um, and he, know, he talks about, at an unconscious level, if your identity, your sailing identity is underrepresented, you count. So if you walk into a room and you're the only woman out of 500 people, you're unconsciously counting. You're unconsciously looking for, oh, oh, oh there she and, and then, but you may see another woman, but you might then be kind of sheepish about, it's like, I see you, but I'm not going to call you out. Um, and so one of the things in terms of belonging is, is there enough of your group present so you can exhale, so you cannot count? Uh, and there was a recent study at University of Texas. Black and Latino students were not graduating. They were saying the students were not capable of doing the work. Um, and they had literally spent millions of dollars remedial trying to help the students do the work. University of Texas is a tough school. Um, and then one of the professors called the black and Latino students together, and he said, so how does it feel being here? And they just <laughs> Now, again, not to knock University of Texas, but they recruited me to come teach there. And I, and I almost went. I would have gone there except up for my granddaughter who was living in California. But as they're taking me around campus, they're saying, now John, don't pay attention to the Confederate memorabilia <laughs> distributed all around the campus. Now, consciously, I might be able to do that. Unconsciously, I can't shut that out. So here are black and Latino students walking around with all this, these, you know, memorabilia, which in some ways is saying, this is not your place. Uh, and so it helps both to pay attention to our environment, it helps to pay attention to critical mass, and it helps to pay attention to calling it out. So once they called it out for the black and Latino students in Texas, they're now graduating at almost the same rate as the white students. And it happened so fast that some researcher says it's not possible. It wasn't they didn't have the capacity to do the work, it's they simply did not feel like it was their place. And that affects their behavior. Uh, and that affects all of us, and not just for black and Latinos, it's true for women, it's true for whites. Anytime we feel like we don't belong, it actually creates cognitive overload, uh, and we don't perform as well. So if you know that there's only one black person out of 50, uh, how do you begin to actually, one, increase the numbers, but two, acknowledge that there's something amiss? Thank you. 
I have a question from Greater Colorado. This question is this on? Okay. Yeah, a question that uh, came in online. Uh, wondering what Dr. Powell's view is of emerging evidence of DNA damage from intergenerational trauma that may predispose to chronic disease. Well, trauma is a big one, and what part of the thing I, t I was suggesting with neighborhood effect and change and restructuring the brain, and some of my colleagues say you got to stop saying that because it sounds hopeless, um, and you know we can't hide from the problem. Um, it, so trauma is frozen energy in the brain, it doesn't release itself. And yes, again, can get passed on from one generation to the next. And there's evidence that um, communities that have been traumatized um, are passing that on to their children. Um, that, so once we see that, what can we do to actually correct it? Uh, again, part of it is acknowledging that there's a problem. We're working with some school districts right now, and um, the students, act out. There are, there are students in New Orleans that when it rains, they, they have a reoccurring traumatic experience. You can't simply tell the students, oh, it's okay, because uh, it's not, um, quote unquote, a rational response. It's a medical response, and it's a response that's deeply within the body. So part of it is to begin to acknowledge that, that we as a society have populations, I would say, certainly, probably many populations, um, when you have mass rapes in society, it's not only affecting the women who are raped, it's affecting the entire society. When you have, you know, my guess is, and they've actually, some of the evidence of this, all the police shootings is having an effect on the, the entire black community. My guess is, for a Latino, whether you are a third generation U.S. citizen or just here, to hear presidential candidates talking about building a wall, what other message can we give to say to people that you don't belong? Uh, and I think we have to stand up and challenge that. And I would love to see health providers talk about the negative impact of what we're doing. This is not just a political sport. Uh, this is actually saying to people, this is actually depressing people's outcome. To have a young man who's building a, a clock to say, no, you're a terrorist, and to handcuff him. That doesn't have just an effect on that young man. It has an effect on this entire community. So I think part of it, as we sort of understand the medical model in a different way, as we understand uh, the, the, the stuff about the mind science, this stuff has to be made part of the public discourse in a very serious way. We have a couple of people coming to mics. And you got there first. Professor Powell, thank you so much. I'm Deborah Foote from Oral Health Colorado. And I'm going to ask a pretty broad question, but I'm curious as to your opinion about integration in all of this. You know, uh, as I suggested earlier, that when we talk about segregation, we talk about it largely in terms of race and whether or not um, two groups need to be together. Uh, which in some ways, um, there's a, a book called, called The Imperative of Integration, which I would recommend by Elizabeth Anderson. Um, we think about it, this is actually, it is a broad question, so let me give you a, a, a probably inadequate answer. Um, we, actually, we actually talk about race being socially constructed, but we don't actually talk about how 
Is it constructive? What are the mechanisms to construct racial and racial meaning? At the beginning of the colony, people who, were, who would eventually be called black and white had deep integration. Uh, there was what we would call interracial marriage is much higher then than now. That, so that the indentured servants from Europe and the indentured slave servants from Africa worked hand in hand. They lived together to the extent that they could. They played together. They had children together. Um, and we interrupted that. You know, we passed laws outlawing interracial marriage. And when the laws were first passed, people thought it was ridiculous. So, what do you mean I can't marry that person? They did public beatings to discourage interracial marriage. They were so successful that now people think, well, it's natural for people to want to be with their own. Well, who's my own? Um, and so to some extent, it's both a deep residual effect of three or 400 years of separating people through slavery, through Jim Crow laws, through uh, social um, disapproval. And now we say, let's leave it alone. The interesting thing is this. The fastest growing population in the United States is not Latinos, it's not blacks, it's not whites, it's interracial couples and their children. So we don't talk about it, we don't facilitate it. At some point it will become a social movement uh, because it's producing a, a new space. Uh, so I, I guess what I'm suggesting is that when people were quote unquote left to their own devices 400 years ago, they got together. We created structures, systems, norms, culture to make it negative. Uh, and, uh, and we continue to do that by talking about walls and rapists and all. So I think that we have to have a real discussion. It's not simply about blacks and whites, and it's not simply about people becoming like whites. So conservatives are worried that the, quote unquote, the browning of America, that there are all these Latinos coming and they're gonna change the country. In some respects, they're right. The country is constantly being remade. It has to be being remade. And that's not a negative thing. It's not going to be made in the image of Mexico or Latin America. It's going to be made in, I mean, any of us who had intimate relationships know that in an you know, intimate relationship, both people change. Uh, and it's something to celebrate. The world is changing. So I think we need to talk about integration as a rad in a radical sense uh, and to facilitate it. And people who don't want to, like, Gay marriage. If you don't want to marry someone of your same gender, don't marry them. But, uh, but gay marriage will change the institution of marriage. In my mind, there's no doubt about it. Uh, and we're constantly being remade. Uh, so I think it's, it's a deeply important question. And the way we do schools right now, our schools remain segregated, our neighborhoods remain segregated. There are some data looking at the segregation in the United States compared to apartheid South Africa. We're almost at the same rate of segregation as apartheid South Africa. Um, so to me, that's not a way forward. And it doesn't speak to a healthy country where we can all belong. Um, Ira Gorman, Regis University. Um, Dr. Powell, um, as far as your targeted universalism, I'm just curious, um, the political, the presidential candidates have recently gotten in trouble with the Black Lives Matter especially responding to it in the terms of all lives matter. So I'm wondering what's the answer or strategy for that? Well, you know, it's actually interesting because implicit, I think, in Black Lives Matters is that all lives matters. And so uh, what, what they're saying, I mean, and you know this in terms of Dred Scott, 
where the Supreme Court said that blacks could never be part of the political community. So when blacks start asserting that, yes, we want to be part of the political community, it would be inappropriate to say, but what about whites too? Whites were already part of the political community, not in a perfect way, by any means necessary, uh, but they were already part of that. So when black life matters, yes, all lives do matter, but what black life matter is really saying is that the way we do policing, the way we do our criminal justice system, the way we do our movies, the way we do, we're saying over and over again that black lives don't matter. And so we're trying to negate that negation by saying black lives do matter. Uh, but it shouldn't be, and if, if people take it that way or people mean that, it shouldn't be meant to mean that Latino lives don't matter, that Native Americans' lives, all lives matter. Uh, but our practice, especially around policing, is a really serious indictment of the claim that all life matters. The one last thing I'll say, say on that is that I do believe in what I call uh, the circle of human concern when none ex are excluded, none. Um, but I also believe the country has a hard time with race and particularly black racism. The country has a particular hostility toward blacks. It has hostility toward Latinos as well and Native Americans, but it has a special hostility toward blacks. For example, the one drop rule, right? We never had that for Latinos. Uh, and, you know, President Clinton is like, yeah, I'm, I'm part Native American. You're probably part black too, but you're not claiming that, right? So this country's had this deep, whiteness in America was formed in the crucible of blackness. Whiteness in America is deeply interrelated and deeply fearful of blackness all at the same time. You talked about uh, earlier that, sorry, my name is Katie and I'm from Rocky Mountain PBS. You talked about um, a lot of explicit barriers having been sort of eliminated. So no more Jim Crow law, no more um, women can't work in certain places. But you also talked about a lot of implicit barriers that still continue to exist, which are a lot easier um, to ignore or to deny. How do you sort of talk about these things that are not as obvious as they maybe once were and how do we overcome implicit barriers? Well, that's why I started off talking about structures. So again, we can say there's a period of time where people with disabilities were closeted away, uh, sometimes allowed to die, sometimes even killed. We don't do that anymore. So we could say, okay, if you had a disability, you're no longer closeted away. But you know, we're not going to help you if you have uh, problems with sight. We're not going to help you if you can't get up the escalator. We're not going to help you if you uh, um, have um, a mental in other words, what I'm saying is that the structures continues to do the work. We don't have to say you're not allowed to on this um, on the third floor. Uh, you just have to figure out how to navigate the escalator. Uh, so when we look and see what structures are doing, and we look at outcomes, they should tell us it's not enough to. When we focus on the intent, we're saying individual intent is producing these negative outcomes, and certainly that's part of it. Uh, but marginalization, the way we structure society has never been simply a function of intent. Uh, it's been a function of many other things. Our social security system, think about this, our social security system says nothing about gender. And yet, it mimicked the role of men in the workplace. It mimicked the role of white men in the workplace. Social security defined work 
as working outside the home in, a, in the former sector. Now, where was the women in the 1930s? They're working in the home. Okay, so that doesn't count. Uh, and then it said, also doing domestic work or working in the fields, that's not real work. Now, a lot of that's been corrected, but it also said if you're not working in the formal sector for 40 quarters, uh, you don't get Social Security, you can get it through your partner. So today, women still don't work 40 quarters. Uh, so they don't get Social Security except through their husband. If their husband die, they can get full benefits provided they don't remarry. Now, gender is not mentioned at all in our Social Security laws. This is today. This is not 50 years ago. This is today. It's a gendered program, and if you look at how it's distributing Social Security benefit, it's very gendered. But it's not, so if we were affirmatively saying, let's build a system that's deliberately inclusive of women and the experience of women, and at the same time change the woman's experience, it would look very different. So all these structures that were put in place, frankly, by when society was largely exclusively white male, are still in place. And all we did is take the name tag off. Those structures still operate. Uh, so we have to look and see how those structures are operating. So you can go to college if you can support to spend $50,000 a year tuition. Oh, you don't have $50,000 a year tuition? You can't go. Oh, that has a disparate impact on blacks and Latinos? Well. That's just economic. So part of the thing, Ned and I talked about this earlier, we say we want to change, but as we change, it actually will have profound implications for the overall system. It's not just changing one part of the system, and that's when I talk about structure, you have to look at what's the relationship between schools, money, neighborhood, the way we fund our schools, what's the relationship between women in the workplace and wealth, and, and so these things, we ask that question, and then finally I would say, our goal is not to stop discrimination. Our goal is affirmative. Our goal is proactive. We want to aff affirmatively include everyone. So it's not like I'm not going to, you know, this, this conversation today, uh, we did something like this uh, several years ago where we had sign, where we were signing, and for people who um, were um, impaired in terms of hearing. But then we flipped it where the conversation was in sign and was translated to the people who couldn't understand sign. And, uh, and we did the same thing with Spanish and English, where the conversation was in Spanish and we translated it to English. And the people who then spoke and spoke English said, whoa, that felt very different. You know? So how do we affirmatively look at these structures and make sure we're doing things to be inclusive? Um, hi, thank you, Dr. Powell. My name is Kathy White. I'm with the Colorado Fiscal Institute. So we work at the policy level on um, tax, budget, and economic policy work. And so I'm really curious about your, and you almost got to the answer that I was looking for just a moment ago. Um, I'm curious about how you set in law or policy a universal goal that allows for sort of targeted solutions. So how, how do you write that policy in such a way that it's not so vague that it's no longer effective and it doesn't actually get at a targeted solution, um, but yet you're moving toward a targeted solution that takes into account um, or is inclusive of all communities? Well, it's a great question. And we have some expressions of that. Think about the American Disability Act. 
uh, and the American Disabilities Act says that uh, a business or a company uh, should make reasonable accommodations. And we're now doing that in the context of schools, and we certainly do it in the context of medicine. We, we're now saying different groups need to be included. So we already have some expressions of that. But we, we're still, especially in the context of race, we're still so nervous about recognizing people that we think that the racial mecca is to say we're all the same. Uh, and in some, in some measures we are. In terms of our human wealth, in terms of our human value, we are all the same. Uh, but I'm not 5'2", and, um, uh, and I'm not 15. You know, so, uh, so what are my needs collectively compared to your needs? Um, uh, I mean, some, some, sometimes this stuff is just silly almost. So for example, there was a, a case where um, a woman wanted to take time off from maternity leave, and the question was, uh, did the company have to allow her time off? And the company took the position, we treat everybody the same. Nobody gets time off for maternity leave, right? Uh, now, that sounds silly, right? It's like, well, how many guys you know have been pregnant? Uh, so we need to be willing to recognize that we are situated differently. We need to have that discussion and have discussion in a way that we're not discounting guys, we're not discounting white men, we're not but people are situated differently. And our goal, and so I think part of it is articulating that, that we really want an inclusive society that recognize that we're situated differently. Not because there's something quintessential different about being uh, dark-skinned, uh, although I must say, when I'm out sometime in the sun with my white friends and they're saying, can I borrow some of your uh, melon? You know, I say, sure, as long as you give it back. Uh, <laughs> so there is something even about being dark-skinned. I mean, the way it interacts with the environment. I mean, literally, I have uh, friends with red hair and it's like, you know, they get sunburned from house lights. You know, so <laughs> that's, that's fair, so we don't go outside. You know, we sit, in, we sit outside eating lunch. I sit in the sun, they sit in the shade. So part of it's willing to recognize that. But because we, when we use race as a way of excluding people, we think the way to address it is to be colorblind. I'm not going to notice that you are darker than me. I'm not going to notice that you're a woman. The, the interesting thing is we can measure this in terms of the mind. And the unconscious is unruly. And so the conscious can say, I'm not going to notice. The conscious is like, you don't have to notice. We're going to notice, we're going to have a meeting about it, we're going to write, write memos, and we're not hiring that guy. <laughs> uh, and we can literally measure that. And I didn't talk much about the unconscious, but we process 40 bits of information a second, four zero. We process 11 million bits of information unconsciously a second. Uh, the unconscious is unruly and is reacting to all kinds of things. And if we're going to become sophisticated, we have to engage that. So I think part of it is sort of stepping back because when people talk about race, everybody's already nervous, anxious, um, defensive. So sometimes it's easier to talk about other things first so people understand that differences not make bad or good, it's just reality. Thank you so much. I'm Kelly Perez from Livewell, Colorado. And I, I, I guess I want to ask you about the sense of loss that you were talking about among white men in particular, because I have a strong sense of it as well. And what we do about that. I mean, how do you get away from the kind of defensiveness and the sense of lost power in order to get to some real solutions? 
That's a great question, and, and although it's extreme in terms of white men and even conservative whites, it's actually true for all of us. Um, we have the human capacity biologically and mentally, we have tremendous capacity for change, but not quickly. You know, it has to be, people need help in terms of change. The country is changing. It's changing quite fast. I mean, people complain. They say, I didn't move out of my neighborhood, but my neighborhood changed. You know, I grew, I grew up in my neighborhood, and now I'm the only one in my neighborhood that speaks English. And it's, and it's like, okay, you know, you could say whatever. You could say the person's making a racist comment, but I wouldn't say that. I would say that the anxiety associated with change is real. How do we help people uh, take that anxiety into a positive direction? Robert Putnam went to Europe uh, in the 1990s, and he talked about the changes in Europe, and he talked about growing anxiety as Europe became more diverse. And he got beat up for it. Basically, he said, you're homophobic, not homo Islamophobic, you're, uh, um, you know, you're anti-immigrant. And I don't think he was necessarily any of those things. He was saying, look, as change happens, people need help. Um, and I think part of the help is, having an affirmative vision of what the change might look like. So the way we deal with it, we meaning people who are left of center, which is, uh, uh, we basically say we're all the same. The right says, you know, those people. But almost no one says, here's a, per uh, here's a positive vision of what change will look like. Uh, and the left's response is in some ways dishonest. I'll give you a couple of examples. In the great debate, um, um, the Lincoln-Douglas debate. Um, Douglas tried to go Lincoln, and he says, if slaves become free, there will be interracial marriage. And that's what Lincoln is advocating. And Lincoln said, are you nuts? No one would advocate interracial marriage. That's not what this is about. When the Civil Rights Movement was at its height, the conservatives said, if black children and white children go to school together, they might get married and might even have sex together. <laughs> uh, again, the civil rights movement is, this has nothing to do with marriage. Uh, that's not gonna happen. And then most recently, right, we say, if gays and lesbians and transgendered people are allowed to get married, the right wing is saying, that's gonna change the institution of marriage. The left says, no it's not, it's gonna be just like it always was. I think those are historically, Douglas was right. Historically, the conservatives was right. But instead of embracing it and saying, yes, the institution of marriage is going to change, it should change. And Ginsburg had it close to right when she said, the institution of marriage, you mean the institution where a man could beat his wife? or That's the institution you're trying to preserve? We want to change that institution. We, so we haven't actually welcomed the change. Our response to people is as bad as the conservatives' response. They're saying, these people coming in is going to change us, and we're saying, they can come in, they're not going to change us. Neither is correct. They're coming in, and they are going to change us. We should change. That's what life is about. We're constantly remaking. Race, identity is socially constructed, which means as our social situation change, who we are will necessarily change. I'll end this by saying this. Think about this. I'm in my late 60s. So I was born a colored boy in Detroit. And later on, I became Negro. And at some point, I became African American. And then I became black. And it's like, you know, I mean, make up your mind. The, po the, <laughs> the point is, and those aren't just words. 
uh, that what it meant to be African-American in the United States has changed in my lifetime. I have children. It's changing in their lifetime. And yet, we don't talk about the change. We don't celebrate the change. We don't help the change. Uh, so I think that's part of the thing. And, and when people say they're anxious about it, I would say that's understandable. Let's talk about it. Instead, what we're more likely to say is that if you're anxious about the country changing, it must be because you're racist. And some of them might be racist. But, the, but the, the, the fear of change, the anxiety around change, is much deeper and goes way beyond just racism or uh, uh, xenophobia. Uh, and we shouldn't concede that. We should actually talk about how do we actually help people with change. Finally, if you just think about it, I have, little, I have a granddaughter and kids. Anytime we have change, change your neighborhood, change your school, change your job, you know, what do doctors say? If you change your job, your house, and your marriage, heart attack. The body shuts down. Too much change, I ain't doing it. I'd rather die than go through any more change. <laughs> so how do we help people navigate that change without saying you're a bad person if change is hard for you? Arthur, I think you get the last question. Okay, then I better make it a good one, huh? <laughs> Dr. Powell, thank you very much for your comments today. My name is Arthur McFarlane. I'm with the Colorado, the Children's <laughs> Hospital of Colorado. Um, my grandfather wrote a very quoted statement in 1903. The problem of the 20th century is the problem of the color line. Now, we know that that problem has changed. We know that that color line has changed, much as you've just described it. But how quickly is that change happening, number one? And then number two, from your perspective, how satisfied with you, with the, the rate of change, have you been over your lifetime. And then the last part of that is, is there really a solution? Do you have hope and belief that this problem that we've been talking about for centuries now is actually going to reach a resolution that we can feel good and comfortable about? Um, great set of questions. But let me ask before you leave, so is, is W.B. Dubois your grandfather? Yes, yes he is. He's, um, he's my great-grandfather. Great -grandfather. All right. Um, well, he's, he's, he's done a service to all of humanity in creating, creating socio modern sociology. For those of you who don't know him, if you don't know him, shame on you. But anyway, <laughs> no, I'm not here to shame you. Um, in some ways, when we talk about the human experiment, it's about uh, can we, and people oftentimes misunderstand um, and, uh, and misquote another great figure, Darwin. And Darwin talked about survival belongs to uh, survival of the fittest. Some people think that meant you went to the gym, you worked out, you're really strong. Uh, what, what Darwin was talking about, if you fit with your environment, if you can adapt to your environment, that's what survival is. That the human species is constantly called upon to adapt to their environment. And we could extend that bring Du Bois and Darwin together, we're talking about the social experiment is, is at least as important as the environmental changes. Uh, and they're not going to stop. We can't stop them. Uh, we have changed, and we will change. And sometimes it's change that we welcome, sometimes it's change that we're afraid of. Uh, but if we don't do it right, I'm from California, and I got notes last night. My, my, um, emails exploded. It's raining! Yay! I mean, that's a change. People used to didn't send emails saying, 
celebrating is reigning. Um, it seems to me, excuse me, that if we don't change, then we become another footnote, and the next species that come along will say, so there was the dinosaurs, and then there were the humans, and now there's us. Uh, we really do have to change. The world is becoming smaller. Uh, technology has connected us in ways that was unthinkable 30 years ago. Uh, there are over three, excuse me, between two and 300 million people a year that moves from the north, from the south to the north. Uh, by some projections, by the end of this century, there will be no major city in the world that will be majority white, as white as con currently constituted. Uh, the, uh, one of the fastest growing religions in the world is Islam. So all these things are happening. How do we make sense of them? And if we can't make sense of them, not just intellectually, but real, we won't survive. Uh, if we can make sense of them, we will have this rich tapestry that we can only imagine. Now, for those of us who have young kids, I mean, uh, my granddaughter, who's six years old, she see, she was with a thing with there were some bikers and and they were they had a young kid with them. She said, "Oh, look, mom." Uh, there's, there's that kid and his two fathers, right? I mean, she didn't even trip over it. It wasn't a question of, hmm, uh, you know, two gay men together. Now, my guess is they weren't gay, but to her, it's like two guys and a, a child? They're obviously married. Uh, so she won't have, won't have to go through the same set of changes that we had to go through. Um, but I think, am I hopeful or not? And people who know me know that I, I say I'm not an optimist, I'm not a pessimist, I'm a possibilist. We engage in the world. We have no idea how it's going to turn out. Uh, but life is about engagement. And it's also a process. I don't think there is a solution, but that's what life is. It's engaging. Uh, as uh, Toni Morrison say, it's the rent we pay for being here on Earth. Um, and we can have some fun along the way as well. Um, so I'd be happy to continue this conversation with all of you. And I appreciate the work you're doing. Uh, and I think you've already brought the country to uh, through the work of health and the social determinants. You've already helped the country a lot, uh, but we expect a lot more of you. Thank you. So uh, we'll wrap up. I want to thank you all for coming. Please, underneath the article, there is uh, an evaluation that helps the trust get better at our work. Please fill that out. Um, the slides from today will be posted on our website, and the video will be produced and available in the next couple of weeks. So if you want to check it out, I appreciate that. Um, I want to make sure that we thank the people that made today possible. I want to thank Open Media Foundation for the live streaming and the great work that you do. I want to thank the Colorado History Center. You are actually welcome as a perk for being here of touring the museum today, if you would like. And we are really pleased that they hosted us. And then I can't stop without recognizing um, that I am the luckiest CEO in the world because of the staff I am honored to work with. The people who make this event possible, Patricia Martinez, Barb Gallegos, Lorena Maldonado, Tara Spar, people who are here and not here are really what makes it successful. And um, I only get to stand up here and smile and, 
and look good uh, while they do all the work. So thanks so much for all that, and we'll see you next time.